Welcome to the University of New South Wales Canberra Australian Naval History Podcast Series, produced in partnership with the Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society, Navy's Sea Power Centre and the Submarine Institute, which has generously supported this particular program. Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoy this podcast and return for others in the series. I'm Professor Tom Frame, a former Naval officer and now Director of the Australian Centre for the Study of Armed Conflict and Society at the Defence Force Academy. The Centre hosts the very active Naval Studies Group. So please visit our website. To find us, simply Google Naval Studies Group and UNSW Canberra. Ours will be the first website in the search results. This podcast is the third in a three-part series on the Royal Australian Navy Oberon-class submarines. We've given it the title, Going West and Living Hard. Let me explain why. In this final episode, we look at the Oberon's relocation to Fleet Base West in Western Australia. Now with the expansion of support facilities at the shore base HMAS Stirling and the rise of the two ocean Navy basing policy in the 1980s, it made sense to deploy submarines to the Indian Ocean, where they faced a range of different strategic and tactical challenges. We also talk about life in an RAN Oberon-class submarine as they ended their operational service and readied for decommissioning as crews prepared for the arrival of the new Collins-class submarines. We're joined by Vice Admiral Ian McDougall, the first submarine captain to later serve as the Chief of Naval Staff. We also have with us Commander Mike Carew, an experienced submarine engineer. We have two submarine captains with us. We have Rick Shoulders and we have David Nichols. And finally, the Warren Officer of the Navy, Warren Officer Gary White, who was a communications sailor in both Oberon-class and Collins-class submarines. Gentlemen, thanks for taking the time to be with us. I'm looking forward to our conversation, partly because it overlaps with my own time in the Navy, but it, I think, covers an important period where the Navy moved from the very successful Oberons to thinking about the next generation of submarines. And really, that's where we're going to start. Ian McDougall, if I can ask you, the government announced in 1987 that the Navy would adopt a two ocean Navy basing policy and half of the fleet would be home ported in Western Australia. Now, I think this probably had a greater bearing on the submarine community than other professional groups in the Navy. But is this really so? And what did it mean to move half the fleet to the West and particularly the submarine, uh, half of the submarine squadron? Well, there's no doubt that it was domestically stressful for um, a lot of the people having to pull stumps in Sydney and put them back down in um, Western Australia. But they did it with good grace and to their great credit. <coughs> it might be drawing too long a bow to say that it was a product of their continuing passion to be submariners and that's probably too glossy a phrase to use. But I think there was a general appreciation that it was in reality a force multiplier. I mean, that, that was the, not the hidden value, but the value of having submarines located in Western Australia with a shorter transit time to where they would probably go 
um, and in order to serve the nation's interests, be it trade-borne or, or in, in something more warlike. And bearing in mind that we were only going to have six Collins class, having had six Oberons, then anything that will multiply the number of effective units is clearly an advantage in a small navy with a big continent. But it really impressed me personally of how well they cope with the domestic stress of, of moving from east to west. Was it difficult to persuade people within the squadron of the need to do this, or did they readily understand? I think so, but I might have um, um, <laughs> a protected view of it, and I would think Warren Officer Wright is probably going to give you um, a much better answer. Well, we'll come to him in a few moments. What, though, I think uh, would be good for us to understand is the Oberons, by the second half of the 1980s, many of them had been around for 20 years. Mike Carew, let me ask you, from an engineering perspective, how reliable were the Oberons through the 1980s, or were they starting to show signs of age? They, um, they were quite well maintained, which was a, which was a good thing. And uh, there was still a lot of experience around from experienced maintainers and there was a lot of mentoring that used to go on. In terms of uh, spares for port and these type of things, they were pretty well sorted out by the Royal Navy. And when they came over to our, our shores, we had a very good idea of the type of maintenance we needed to do. And there was a lot of preventative maintenance done. And this was done a lot, in a lot of cases due to the mentoring of the older senior sailors on the young fellas, those types of uh, those types of knowledge transfers were, were excellent. So how many boats at any one time were you trying to keep operational and succeeded in keeping operational? Well, generally there was uh, one in full cycle docking and uh, one in an intermediate type docking and the others were operational or on the cusp of being operational through a, a self-maintenance period and those, those types of lower level maintenance. So four out of six? And I remember hearing rumours at the time that, oh, one boat would be cannibalised for another and if we ever needed to have enough parts for six, we wouldn't have had enough. Now, is that urban myth or is there something in that? I'd say that was more urban myth than anything else because near the end of the Oberon's life, I think there was a drying up of spares, but there was a mob in England called Leafield Logistics who was buying up a lot of spares from Oberon's around the world and they were supplying these parts. And we also had the Chileans and the Brazilians as well who required spares for their submarines. And so there was this uh, push to centralise the, uh, the spares held in UK and the spares over here. And uh, Kodok used to be quite good at refurbishing spares. Kodok being? Cock 2 Island, yeah. And in compared to, say, the British boats and those of other people who had them, how's Rao's, how's how were ours comparing in their ability to stay at sea? Well, that was the main thing. Uh, because of the amount of spares and Oberon carried with it, it was uh, almost autonomous. And if your uh, observation of the machinery operation, as we were quite adept at in those days, you just uh, operate through your senses and you just hear a change in pitch and you knew you had to 
either shut the thing down or uh, it was about to disintegrate. And uh, you try to catch it very early by, by just your understanding of the machinery. And did you think in the 80s, well, they've got two years, five years, ten years left in them? Or did you think that, look, they're really now starting to get to a point of obsolescence, they're wearing out too quickly? Or did engineers think, look, no, these boats have got plenty of life left in them? Oh, there was plenty of life, surely, because of the maintenance regime we placed on it. You had mid-cycle dockings, which uh, were done after three years, and a full-cycle docking after five years. And so they were very well maintained, and we knew exactly where all the corrosion spots were, so we were quite on top of that, and the hull maintenance was quite uh, fastidious. Would you have said then that after a full cycle, it's almost a new boat? Almost a new boat, yep. So you were confident in their capacity for the next five years to operate. So Rick Shoulders, what were the operational aspects of running submarines out of Western Australia that didn't exist when they were only run out of the eastern states of Australia? Oh, I think the, the biggest uh, impact uh, going on to Ian's point was obviously the transit uh, distances. Um, uh, again, mother, uh, so the squadron, the mother squadron was, was in Sydney and that was a big shock to, to many. So there's a lot of self-help. I took Oxley over as the first uh, home ported submarine and, and just happened to live in Kim Beasley's electorate uh, who made that decision. Um, but the, the distance to our new areas of operation was shorter. Uh, we did a lot of time away. Um, a lot of it crossing the bite, the Great Australian Bite became good friends to us and, and Bass Strait, as well as uh, doing a lot of operations on both coasts with um, the normal fleet on the east coast in, off Sydney uh, and back to see the mother at the squadron um, in the bicentennial year as it turned out. Um, and then also working with the WA ships, those early uh, old destroyer escorts that we had to practice ASW on or they had to practice ASW on us. So. There were a lot of things, the transit, um, there was a lot more time at sea, I think, for the West Coast boat, uh, both from uh, Oxley uh, and then I home ported again Orion. So that both of those boats spent a lot of time at sea uh, with a very small squadron support staff till we shifted the squadron uh, in about 1993. Now for those watching this who have never been to see a submarine, can't imagine what it's like when it gets really rough in the bight or in Bass Strait, do you stay on the surface or do you hide? Um, preferably you hide or dive if possible, um, but a lot of our transits were very time constrained uh, and we, we had to time it uh, as well as we could. Um, some, some of the transits were horrendous, uh, crossing the bite as some previous uh, speakers have talked about. Peter Horobin, I think was famous for losing his sonar dome, uh, crossing the bite. Um, but it was, it was normal and we just got on with it uh, and those long transits to Asia were the same. So if it was really rough and you were going straight into the weather and you left Sydney and you were going over to the west, what was the longest passage if everything was against you? I think uh, the longest would have been about two weeks um, if you had to slow down because of the, the, the storms or whatever. Uh, and people usually wanted to get home because they adopted WA as their home or Fremantle and Stirling. Um, as Ian said, there was a big shift. A lot of people to this day have stayed and settled in Western Australia, which became the home of the submarine service. So. Yeah, there were some long trips. Uh, again, sometimes we had to slow down to work with the surface fleet, uh, that last bit of operational training. Um, 92 wing, the uh, uh, RAF P3 Orions became our best friends, uh, crossing the bite, which we couldn't do without them uh, working with us. So again, that transit prolonged, those exercises prolonged the transit.
And in, in your view, as someone who took the first boat over there, uh, were the arrangements such in the West that you could say, yep, this was prepared for well and executed nicely? I think the, uh, the, the base itself uh, we'd visited for many years, um, from about 1980 onwards with submarines uh, and, of course, the surface fleet. So it was well set up. Um, there were, the staff was minimal, but we had a couple of very good submariners who um, were trained and, and came across to Western Australia as part of the HMAS Sterling staff, uh, who gave us tremendous support. Uh, and then we had a lot of people who flew across to the West for, for many years in supporting us, both squadron staff uh, and from Navy office and fleet as well. So the, the fleet was set up, there was plenty of space, it was a, our own berth um, and good accommodation for those who, the sailors who wanted to stay on that base, it, it won awards and when it was opened. And of course for the families um, who couldn't afford to buy in Sydney, even in those days, um, the housing was, was an opportunity for them at that stage. Rockingham looked good. Uh, Rockingham looked good. Many didn't. Uh, many shunned that, but others went to all places, uh, south and north uh, of the river. So, from 1988 onwards, uh, it was a great opportunity for for many people. I've got to I've got to ask you this: the passage into Platypus and the passage into Stirling. Um, did you miss one and prefer the other? Oh, I certainly missed Sydney. The, the passage into Sydney, I'd have to say, is probably the best in the world um, that, for those who've done it. Um, Stirling uh, and Western Australia, it's pretty flat. Um, there's not a lot of uh, nice things to look at, uh, heading down past the refinery, uh, uh, the grain silos, and then heading on to, a, to Garden Island itself. So it was very different, um, but people, people tuned to it very quickly and, and loved it. And Gary White, you have a perspective, I think, that's interesting from two points of view. First of all, as a communications sailor, so you uh, obviously had a different tempo of operations in the eastern states and in the west as a communicator. So can you say something about that? And also, just how you and your colleagues found the transition from east coast basing to west coast basing? Yeah, maybe if I can start with the second uh, part. Um, you can't underestimate the apprehension that was there in the early days. Uh, if I remember rightly, uh, the government made the announcement about the two ocean uh, policy in 1987, if I remember rightly. Um, so in those late 80s, um, although we kept our people, and it's something that I, I um, remember quite fondly, uh, we kept our people very well informed in the submarine community. We weren't in the business of, um, you know, uh, keeping bad news a secret, hoping it's going to get better over time. And we were very good at just being very open and honest with our people. So um, even even the able seamen um, knew what the what the game was in those early days but did some choose not to go like they oh, just of course. Thought, I'm just not going and so what proportion of people do you think made that decision and didn't go did you get a sense of like is it a handful or a quarter or something like that or was it hard to tell uh, the the amount of the number of people that said they wouldn't go and the, that's it I'm done with submarines I'm leaving um, was uh, much greater than the numbers that ultimately left um, and I think it goes back to some of your comments um, when they uh, when we got to the west, uh, people actually, a lot of people actually quite liked it. Um, having platypus and having your own community um, was very important to, to submariners and that's a slightly different um, point um, that I'll talk to in a moment about when we moved to the west. But from, a, um, you know, from some of those points around being able to afford a home uh, and the lifestyle in the west was, was very different to Sydney. Um, but we did... Um, we were a community that enjoyed the stability of Sydney and the stability of Platypus. 
So it was a shock to us. Um, and there were a lot of sailors uh, who said, um, were very open and said, uh, no, I will not go west. And so their postings would have been a submarine, platypus, platypus, a submarine, the same as the aviators with Melbourne when it was burning and turning in Albatross. It was the same for submariners? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. 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 And it, you know, it was a different time. Obviously, um, some enjoy the gypsy life they like moving around Australia. And, but in, for the main part, uh, submariners, I think uh, we really uh, cherished platypus and we enjoyed that, that lifestyle and that stability. So it was, it was different. Uh, when we moved to the west, we became a lodger unit of a much larger uh, enterprise. So, uh, and the facilities were obviously very different. So, for a period of time there, over a number of years, uh, I feel that we 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 did lose a, a sense of identity, not purpose. Um, we were still very clearly focused on what we were there to achieve, but but the dynamic was very different. The context was very different, and we we did have two um, two submarine communities for a while. And the comms, how, how did it go being a comm sailor? Were you getting bored at times in the West because there weren't as many ships or was life always busy as a communicator? Uh, some would argue that when we're deep, submariners enjoying their percolator and sitting back reading books and the comms then wasn't that busy. But um, uh, no, look, it didn't really change, to be honest. Um, it, whether you're talking to two ships or four ships, it didn't really make much difference. Um, the, the, the nature of comms didn't change. Uh, I will make make one point though, in my later career in uh, the Collins boats, I was also a chief of the boat a number of times too, so that brought a different perspective to life in a submarine, as opposed to sitting on the bridge as the baby communicator. Um, Being shouted at? No, not really. No? I, I wasn't really shouted at. I mean, often, <laughs> only when I didn't pay attention, I probably deserved it, but but um, but it was a, just a different lifestyle um, yeah. compared to later on being a uh, chief of the boat of a submarine. Now, Mike Carew, when the boats were getting ready to go to the West, what were the particular engineering challenges that you had to make sure that they were properly sustained? Because I presume if there was a major breakdown in the West, you could hardly put them on a truck and bring them to the Eastern States. I think the big challenge was uh, the facilities over there. The ship lift at Henderson was very exposed. When they pulled the submarine out of the water, you didn't have to worry about grit blasting it. The Fremantle doctor would do it for you. So the amount of... Uh, grit flying around there so that that must have had a downside though of course yeah when when you open your hydraulic systems and those sort of things you you get a lot of grit in so there had to be like a tent put over the submarine and uh that that was a particularly big challenge and bringing spares on board that would uh, tend to be contaminated with with grit so there was this uh i really had to be careful with with maintenance over there and maintaining your uh, your your integrity of your equipment when you brought it on board yeah, that, that would have been the biggest challenge. And did the engineering community think when the, the Two Ocean Navy basing policy was announced as, oh, this is just going to be too difficult. We're too well set in the eastern states. We've got Garden Island, all the facilities, previously having had Cockatoo. We're going over to the west. This isn't a good idea and they'll scrimp and save on infrastructure. Or was there another view? Oh, there, there was the support from the experienced people in the east, which was good. So they, they were transportable over to the west, but I think there was a, a challenge for them as well because a lot of them had family on the east coast and, uh, and they had to transit over to, say, do an immediate docking on a submarine in the west over at Henderson. And so they'd be there billeted in, uh, in the west away from their families. So they, there was that type of, uh, type of issue as well, but uh, they're fairly stoic creatures. They, they got over it and got through it. So there's been no 
in your experience and what you observed, there were no structural problems, there were no major organisational problems that stopped, precluded or prohibited submarines from operating in the West. And as uh, Admiral McDougall was suggesting earlier, it was a good thing to do, we did it and it was done well. Yeah, I think there was a lot of learning as well, which was good. There was a lot of feedback loops and say, how can we do it better next time? Those type of things. So there, there was that, uh, that as well, which put us in good stead for Collins when it was first deployed to the West. There was this understanding of what it meant to have a submarine and the amount of support that was required to, uh, and, and the people required to maintain the submarine on the, uh, on the West Coast. If I could come now just to life on Oberon's, because there'll be those that have watched the programs. This is our third. They think maybe we haven't talked about all of the things that happen in submarines that they'd like to know about, or maybe too much detail, some might think. Uh, but David Nichols, I noticed that on your lapel, you have a little miniature set of dolphins. Now that's the symbol of the submarine branch. Why do submariners have dolphins? Why should they be different to other specialisations in the Navy? And what does it mean to be a person who has dolphins? Well, it's very important to submariners generally to be recognised for uh, the, their expertise, their professional endeavours. Um, the esprit de corps, it doesn't matter which navy you go to in the world, you'll find the submariners have an esprit de corps. For our 100th anniversary of submarines, we had a visit from a lot of Russian submariners. And they got on extremely well with our submariners because, you know, it's that we operate in a dangerous environment surrounded by the ocean and you all have to learn the same level of inf technology information from the lowest junior sailor to the captain they all know that their lives can depend on any one of those guys getting it wrong if, if they get it wrong then that's very bad so the esprit de corps is very important and most navies have something equivalent to the dolphins that you're wearing if we were a bit late well in fact the royal navy is probably the last one in the sea we in the royal australian navy got our dolphins before they did and uh, there was a somewhat reluctance on the part of the senior officers in the Royal Navy to accept it. But they got round to it and I think the Royal Navy just as proud now as the Dolphins as every other Navy is. Um, they, some navies have, uh, if they have a nuclear branch and, a, and a, a fast attack and a ballistic submarine, they have different sorts of badges. But you know, it's just the way that they express themselves. I'll wear mine, even though I'm no longer in uniform, because I'm very proud of being a submariner. And I think it's important that, uh, you know, when I so it's who you, part of who you are. Everybody in my golf club knows I'm a submariner. But do you think people understand what it means to be a submariner? Are oh, you a kind of weird person that can endure a lifestyle that most can't? Is that part of what it is for people? You're a special person, I a think special to meaning frank, a lot of, Most people don't understand. And that's part of the role of the Submarine Institute is to try and educate people through public debate, uh, letters to the editor and general debate, what submarines do and why they're important. Um, you know, we in the Summit Institute uh, have made calls recently on regular calls on politicians, staffers, to help to them to understand that when the issue of, for instance, the current debate on shipbuilding and a lot of that to do with submarines, that they understand a bit more about those issues than they did before. So we brief them and it's important. This particular podcast of three episodes is going to serve to do just that, to help people understand a bit more. But I think we can do a lot more about educating our uh, public at large about submarines. I think that is true. Rick Shoulders, in your time in command and being in the squadron, briefing politicians, did they understand what submarines were about, what they could do? How did they understand the submarine perhaps as an offensive weapon, but at the same time being unable to say against whom we may have wished to be offensive? 
I think every, every occasion that uh, I had the opportunity to brief uh, people, with the exception of Kim Beasley, who had a, had a unique understanding uh, of submarines, their strategic impact and, and uh, the two ocean basing policy, uh, each event was a new event for many of these politicians, unless they'd been in the job for some time, to educate them. And every time we had to educate them so that they understood the risks that we were taking, uh, the operational value and the strategic value to our US and our, all our Five Eyes counterparts. So every briefing was a unique one. Um, I'm so not sure those that came with us, uh, we had to do it. But by and large, they uh, sat there, they took it in and they understood it and then made uh, very good decisions based on the advice we gave them at the time. So and in the 1980s, today. in the 1980s, when a politician said to you, has an Oberon submarine ever fired a torpedo or a missile in anger, and you would give the answer, well, it hasn't. How did you persuade them that it was still important to have submarines? I think from the debates that we had uh, who came from um, probably uninformed questions by their, by their staffer or just their own background, uh, we had to take them through the value uh, of the asset that Australia owned and had improved over the time with the SWAP uh, program and then, of course, into Collins uh, before I left. Um, each event, you, you had to tell them the truth and you had to say the value and the pros and cons of each decision. Uh, and we got some very, we had some good allies after a period of time, uh, some good ministers of defence, um, some chiefs of staff that actually um, got on our side and, and took them, but it was a journey. And we had to take them on that journey every single time. But was it demoralising when it was hard to get personnel to be submariners? You think, I've given my life to this, this is really important work, this is on the leading edge, and yet it's difficult to get people to volunteer. Uh, yes, it was, and uh, we had some unique conversations with uh, some ministers. Um, Brendan Nelson was one of them, who were a great ally of the submarine service uh, and defence, of course. Um, but getting personnel, or the personnel problem, which came to a head, I suppose, in 2005, five, six, uh, where we had, you know, at one stage five columns operational, uh, then it went down very quickly down to two, uh, three to two, um, and we couldn't change the, the recruiting base. Um, things were against us, the mining industry was at its peak. Uh, we were still in Western Australia, it still had a bit of a, as Gary said, it had a little bit of a hangover. Uh, and that is something that uh, we need to look at again, as to how we run submarines from uh, maybe the east coast, which was the original intention, but was then never really done properly. Um, so yes, there was hard to get people, and there was that last question of, did we want to go to conscription? for submariners and I think most of the submariners and the people themselves said no. Uh, the small forays uh, that we did into that, uh, enforcing uh, or using a lot of um, convention, uh, you know, uh, coercing some people didn't work and we now know that uh, is not the way to do it. So it's still a whole volunteer force. So money's not the answer? Money uh, is not necessarily the answer. Uh, it's a number of things and the newer generation have even more issues to, that they want to deal with and we have to make it an attractive service. It may not be for life, um, which those sitting on this bench is probably what it was. Um, they may come and go. They may come and go two or three times from the service to industry. So we have to get over that and start to adjust. And Gary, what was it that led you to be a submariner? And having become a submariner, you thought, no, this is actually the hardest thing I have to deal with. So when people are watching, they're thinking, what's the toughest, roughest thing about being a submariner? Is it being away from family, being dived, the conditions? What is it? Uh, it's a lot of things. It's, um, there's no place to hide. You have to be an expert in what you do. Uh, and all submariners, everyone that wears the dolphins, um, uh, we share that 
that motivation to be a professional. Um, you know, it takes one person's mistake to potentially result in tragic circumstance. So we, we understand that. So it's hard. And anything that's hard, um, some people are going to balk at. Uh, however, it's an incredibly satisfying. Um, you know, to this day, I've, I've achieved some things in my career and I'm quite proud of them, but I mean this quite sincerely. The proudest day in my naval career was the day that I was given my dolphins. And it's something, you know, a question you asked earlier about what it is to be a submariner. Do people understand what it is to be a submariner? Unless, you've, unless you wear the dolphins, unless you've gone through that journey and achieved uh, that, um, it's an incredibly hard thing to explain. For me personally, I, I vividly remember the day I uh, chose to pursue um, to be a submariner and I actually joined uh, to be a, a meteorologist and they disbanded that within weeks of me joining so I was... Uh, there was no message in that for you. <laughs> <laughs> Three or four, when I joined, um, you didn't join as a radio operator or a signal, they told you what you were going to be so I was particularly good at flags and uh, flashing light so they're going to make me a signalman and um, I still remember the submarine recruiting team were doing their, their latest recruiting drive through Cerberus and um, the Warren officer, I forget who it is, but uh, who it was, but... Um, who should be name, nameless, perhaps. Name, no, no, <laughs> he, he, not, he made a good decision, I think, because um, uh, I remember him coming into our classroom and saying, uh, all you signalmen, um, I want you to go to this submarine. And our petty officer said, well, what's the point? They're going to be submarine, they're going to be a signalman. He said, oh, I'll let him go along anyway and listen. Anyway, so I went in and I sat in the back of the uh, auditorium. I listened to these uh, stories of you know, wine, women and song and all this extra money, which wasn't actually the driver for me personally, but it was, it was a good thing. Um, but the, the person speaking would touch his nose every so often. He'd say, look, I, I can't really tell you what we do, but, and then he'd sort of talk a little bit to it. And this is pre-Gulf War um, day. So um, I sat there and thought, look, if I'm gonna spend some time in this organization, I wanna do something that matters. I wanna do something for real um, I think I might want to be a submariner. So the next day, mysteriously, I could no longer read flashing light or, or understood flags. The school was on to me. It took me about two weeks of having that conversation and I was threatened to be kicked out of the Navy, but I stuck to my guns and they reluctantly let me transfer to be a radio operator, which then opened up the path for me to, to be a submariner. And do people now, with the Collins class and since they've arrived, are there people that say, oh, I'm an Oberon sailor? Is it still a kind of badge of honour that I was in Oberon's? You might have been in Collins, but I was in Oberon's and there's almost like a divide. I mean, I imagine it'll go soon when Oberon people have all paid off. But is, is, is there a bit of that? There is a little bit of that, but it's, it is becoming less, uh, and it's never been an issue. Um, you know, if you look on social media and submariners like to get on there and, and have our opinions on things. And there was a bit of that for a number of years and us and them, but, but ultimately what won through was a uh, respect um, for dolphin wearers, regardless of what um, class of submarine you serve in. So I've actually seen a shift in the last couple of years. And again, it's just um, my observations of uh, Facebook and other social media, but there are quite a lot of uh, old school submariners now saying, hey, you know, back off. They're submarin These people are submariners too. They're part of our community. And yeah. that's been good. You know, that's one through in the end. Um, it, it was never a uh, mean-spirited thing, but it was this badge of honour that, you know what, I was on Oberon's and I did it pretty tough. Um, I would argue that an able seaman on a Collins, I, I, if you think about the uh, scheme of complement on a Collins and an Oberon, the major change in those schemes of complement were um, the removal of about 15 or 20 junior sailors.
you know, the wardroom, the senior sailors mess fundamentally didn't change that much. But uh, so the remaining junior sailors, uh, their workload increased considerably. So they may argue that their life was even a little bit harder. Now, Rick Shoulders, just a question for you before I ask the panel just for one lasting legacy of the Oberons. In 1988, I think it was, there was an incident on board Atama where two submariners were lost. I think they're probably the only two lost in those kind of circumstances. Can you tell us something about the impact of that incident on submarine operations more broadly? Uh, Tom, I think the uh, 1981 uh, was the or original, uh, the first one, which was Christopher Paslow, uh, and that was the engine run-on incident. Um, that changed our operations and our training for sea quite dramatically. Um, at that stage, um, we had people come back from the United Kingdom uh, and been trained through a very arduous uh, sea training group pro proposal. We then professionalised that group, um, from my memory, very quickly in the squadron, and that incident was played over and over again for training of every submarine that we subsequently worked up. Uh, I think there were some other changes, and, and Mick uh, may know more, but some engineering changes on breathing apparatus, the positions of those breathing apparatus, uh, th simple things like smoke curtains became far more formalised. Uh, now it's called OHS or WHS. Uh, so that was the Paslow incident. The one that you're referring to, the Atama, uh, the two um, young sailors died uh, off Sydney. Um, it changed the way, um, again, another a jolt to the system on safety procedures and following the rules uh, quite rigidly. So there were a lot of uh, incident, a lot of problems that uh, the Board of Inquiry looked at for that submarine that, that uh, caused the loss of those two sailors. Uh, a bit like Swiss cheese, all the holes had to line up. Um, and unfortunately, uh, some rules were broken. Um, procedures weren't followed, there was uh, too much uh, rushing about, uh, a lot of conflicting uh, things trying to be done at the time. But it certainly changed our, our um, operations, the, the administration of people going outside the pressure hole to this day. No one uh, exits the pressure hole, visitor otherwise, Prime Minister without uh, a life jacket, fully briefed, checked and double checked before they exit the pressure hole and also re-entering the pressure hole. So, Again, it, it was always there, but uh, when people don't follow the rules, then uh, those two deaths occurred. So uh, it's a big reminder, a big reminder that in the end, submarine operations will dangerous. always be potentially yeah. dangerous if people yeah. don't observe procedures. Um, it was, and I remember it being up at HMAS Watson uh, uh, at the, the Swiss, I think, in the, on the day. Uh, the weather was horrendous, um, going outside Sydney Heads, uh, and I could see the submarine going, and then subsequently learned what happened uh, later on that afternoon. Um, it, it was a great shock to the submarine squadron. Um, we had to take stock very quickly, uh, not just changing procedures, but looking at the whole of our safety procedures, um, how, how clear and present that danger was if you didn't follow the rules. Mm. Uh, and that, that applied not just to the safety of manoeuvring around in, inside the submarine as a person, but some of the things we did, some of the operational things we did, we probably uh, put in operational risk management a little bit more rigidly than it had been done in the past. So. Yes, it was a great catalyst to do things, uh, yet another step of professionalism up above. And again, uh, that led us into uh, the Collins class. Uh, and then we adopted the SubSafe program, uh, which Mick can talk about for the engineering checks. Um, yeah, a big shock to the system, having seen the death in 1981, and then to have that in 1987 was, uh, was just shocking. Our time is almost up, but we've now had three 
uh, sessions where we looked at the Oberons. Can I ask you briefly just to mention one legacy of the 33 years that the RAN operated Oberons that you think are significant? I'll perhaps just work away across the panel, Mike, if you'd start. One legacy of the Oberons that you think those who are watching this program shouldn't go away without understanding. I think it was touched on the, the professionalism that grew out of such horrible incidents that were discussed earlier and the contact we had with the Royal Navy who had a professional workup team and what we learned out of those things and how we applied them to, to the Australian context and how we built up a professional bunch of uh, sea training group over here. That was, I think that was a great legacy from the early years of Aberon operations. Yeah. Thank you. David. Uh, well, harking back to the SWAP program, I think our ability to integrate innovative technology you know, within a small Navy was epitomised in that program. And I'd like to think that as we approach the future submarine, we take that legacy and apply it to our new submarines. There are very many smart, small companies around Australia with brilliant technology. We should be capable and flexible enough to insert that in, as a sovereign uh, capability into the new submarines. So I think that's one of the things. Rick? Uh, having, having just joined the squadron as, as we started our SWAP, I think the biggest impact was SWAP itself. Uh, not just the technology, as David has said, but getting us into that now uh, very strong relationship with the professionalism and the strategic warfighting capability of our submarine service with the United States. And I think SWAP um, took us into that thing, whether it was through RIMPAC or now what we do with the Americans. So we, we, we moved in our own Navy from just being the ASW training target, which was still there when I joined, uh, to something that the rest of the fleet now looks at um, with a lot of aspiration and that we're, we're part of the fleet. We're no longer just sitting over in neutral bay uh, because we're good at what we do uh, and we actually add strategic value as well. Rick, thank you. And Gary. Uh, I think about our uh, contemporary environment and, and the efforts being made today in the uh, space of resilience and, um, and CN's initiative there. And I, and I think back to my days on submarines and it demonstrated that when you have a, um, a group of people who are trained exceptionally well, they um, rely on each other for that professionalism and that, that um, uh, that ability to put that submarine to sea and keep it safe and uh, you uh, overlay on top of that great leadership and command with a clear intent, uh, that developed a very resilient group of people because they relied on each other and I think we can take a lot of lessons you know, today from those days. Thank you. Thank you gentlemen. That's all we have time for for this particular podcast. Can I thank Vice Admiral Ian McDougall, Michael Carew, David Nichols, Rick Shoulders and Gary White for sharing of their experience. We hope that you've enjoyed these three podcasts looking at the Oberon class submarines. There'll be others in our history series. We invite you to look at the website and join us for them. Bye for now.